All right, welcome everyone um, to our second Notre Dame International Security Center uh, seminar of the semester and our second fall Zoom seminar. Uh, thanks for joining us. I think we have a, a terrific seminar planned today. I'll introduce our speaker, Dan Byman, in just a second, but uh, I did want to um, mentioned before I do that, that this is a seminar series and we have another one coming up. And um, since we're on Zoom, we don't have quite the same advertising uh, ability. So I'm gonna do it, I always do it at the beginning. Um, uh, but our next speaker uh, is uh, uh, Lise Morge Howard, uh, who's also a professor at Georgetown University. Um, she's a leading uh, uh, expert on uh, peacekeeping, and um, uh, political violence and intervention in, uh, to try to resolve political violence, uh, particularly in, um, well, in Central Africa, but uh, um, she's actually traveled all over the world studying this. And uh, that's coming up in, I believe, three weeks, I believe. Um, and, uh, on the regular Tuesday afternoon time at 4.30 in the afternoon, and we hope you'll join us for that. That's gonna be another uh, very interesting talk. And um, if you are not for some, if you're for some reason are not on the NDISC email list and would like to be, please get in touch with uh, Anika Johnson. Um, uh, she is the program manager at NDISC and expert at making all good things happen and she will get you on the email list. So normally I would pass around um, uh, an email sign-up list. We don't have that this time, but please uh, join up if you're interested. There's lots of good things happening at NDISC. Um, so uh, uh, today we'll follow our usual format. I'll introduce Dan Byman. He'll talk for 30 or 35 minutes presenting, and then we'll have Q&A until six o'clock to get yourself on the question queue. Um, please uh, uh, raise your hand uh, in Zoom. And um, there's directions for how to do that if you don't know on the NDISC website, but basically you go in the participants section of Zoom and click raise hand and I will see you and I will uh, um, keep track of the queue and I, I will recognize people in turn. When you're recognized, um, I'll unmute you. Uh, you can ask your question, stay unmuted um, until you're done with your interchange. If you have a follow-up question or whatever with uh, um, uh, Dan, that will be your opportunity to do it. Please also um, turn on your video for when you are speaking to the group and to Dr. Byman. Um, we also have the opportunity for two finger interventions if you're really right on point and have a very quick question. Um, again, the directions for that are on the NDISC website. So without further throat clearing. Um, uh, today, we have a real treat. Um, uh, uh, wonderful person, super smart, leading expert, dear, dear friend. We're very grateful that uh, um, Dan Byman has agreed to join us today. Um, uh, he uh, is a professor at Georgetown University and uh, really one of the leading experts in the United States on uh, or worldwide, why limited to the United States on uh, uh, terrorism, counterterrorism, and um, uh, some of the other issues that he's going to engage today: insurgency and and um, uh, uh, 
his new project is really very exciting and very interesting, but he has a long history of very influential, widely cited uh, work uh, in this area, um, you know, dating to before he came to graduate school. But then, you know, he was on the staff of the 9-11 Commission and, and uh, um, published some very influential reports at RAND and then um, uh, uh, has had an awesome career as a professor at Georgetown. Um, so uh, it's a real pleasure to have him come talk to us about his current project, um, uh, explaining the failure of reconstruction, a counterterrorism perspective, it says on his slide. Um, uh, we advertised it as the first failed war on terror, the failed first war on terror, which is an incredibly catchy title too. And uh, we really look forward to hearing more about it. So please take it away, Dan. Uh, thank you. Uh let me begin by thanking Professor Goltz, uh, Anika, and this in general. It's really a, a pleasure uh, to be talking with all of you. I wish I could be there in person, uh, but it's uh, nice to be able to share ideas in any event. Uh, this project really grew um, as I was, frankly, re-educating myself on a lot of American history over recent years. And as I began to read about Reconstruction after the Civil War, um, a lot of it sounded quite familiar. You had military troops going in after um, what seemed like a pretty clear defeat on in victory in the battlefield. Uh, you had a dramatic effort to change political systems. You had local resistance. You had a divided society. You had, um, over time, people just getting tired of the whole thing in terms of deploying troops and questions about, do we have enough troops? Do we have the right mission? Uh, should we compromise? And as someone who's been following debates about the U.S. role in Afghanistan, the U.S. role in Iraq, the possible U.S. role in Syria, should the U.S. have had a bigger role in Libya, all these uh, questions on the Middle East um, were very present in my mind, strangely enough, as I'm reading about American history in the mid-19th century. Um, and as I began to read more and more about Reconstruction, I really felt that we as a community of security studies scholars, people who look at conventional issues, I really haven't looked at this episode. And so this is my own, I'll say, work in progress to be very clear um, as an attempt to kind of bring this in. Um, so what are my main arguments today? Uh, one is that this extensive work that the academic community has done really for more than uh, 20 years, but certainly since 9-11 on terrorism insurgency and occupation offer some insight into this reconstruction period. Um, and to say the obvious that terrorism and political violence in general uh, led to the overturning of democratic um, politics and arguably the results of the Civil War. That the South that emerges in the late 19th century is quite different from certainly what a democratic South would have looked like. And also from what many of the people who imagined what the South should look like um, thought. Um, big problems that are quite familiar to anyone who's looked at military planning. Uh, there weren't enough federal troops, and those that were there had a very limited mission. And as a result, uh, the ability to enforce order, the ability to stop relatively a number of bad actors from causing chaos caused huge problems. Uh, there were some alternatives, right? So things the United States has done in Iraq, where it has created or uh, worked with militias and tribal groups, um, those were extremely difficult uh, to do in the South for political reasons, right? Quite possibly might have worked, but had no problems. Um, but a big one I want to stress is 
one thing that I recommendation I've constantly made and others have made is when you talk about compromise in civil wars, you say, you know, what you really need to do is meet the other side halfway. You have to recognize you're not going to get everything you want. You have to accept local power realities, lots of things that seem very sensible. Um, if we apply this in the aftermath of the Civil War, what you're really saying is you should take people who want to ensure white supremacy and basically take out the roughest edges of that, so take out slavery, but allow that in the name of peace. And it really highlights a problem with compromise. And that's kind of an obvious point, but when we think about things like what to do in Afghanistan today, um, there are real questions on the human rights implications of what we leave behind, even if it's more stable, even if it's less violent. And I would argue in the American South, the system that was left behind entrenched white supremacy for you know, at least 100 years, and arguably it's still on today to a degree. Um, I won't uh, labor this slide, but I'm gonna talk you through some theory and definitions quickly and then go through reconstruction um, at different aspects of um, what I think matter, highlighting different aspects of a very complex history to talk about factors that I think um, had a big impact in the end. Um, some definitions. Um, I happen to really like the CIA definition of uh, insurgency, so it's the one I always use. Um, but it really fits what was going on in the South after the American Civil War. So it's a protracted struggle. You have a government that is being subverted, it's legitimacy challenged, um, an occupying power, and we'll discuss that, that somewhat loaded term that is being challenged. You have a regular military forces, um, and part of the goal is to gain territory um, and a population. And uh, to me, that very much fits what's going on. Uh, terrorism, the definitions we tend to use are kind of big enough to drive a truck through. Um, so I'll say it's relatively easy to fit a definition of terrorism if you're talking about substate violence, but it, the most common uh, definitions we use certainly fits of substate violence being used. Um, a tricky question to me is occupation. So after uh, uh, Dave Elstein, my colleague at Georgetown wrote, to me, a very good book on occupations, and he defines it um, as uh, you know, temporary control of a territory by another state that's not trying to claim permanent sovereignty. Now, to say the obvious, you know, the part of the purpose of the Civil War was about permanent sovereignty, right? So it's very hard to say that the Union did not want permanent uh, sovereignty over the defeated Confederacy. Uh, but here, I want to stress the federal nature of the U.S. system. There was a real question as to what sovereignty entailed. And for, at the time when we're talking about this time period, people really believed very strongly in a high degree of state control. And so the idea that there would be a lasting military presence, the idea that the federal government would be determining the, the constitutions of state governments, would be determining much of the day-to-day -day politics, that was not on people's minds. That was always seen as a temporary measure. So I think some of the occupation logic holds, but some of it doesn't. So I do draw on that literature, but I don't wanna kind of make too strong a point that this is a classic occupation, it's not. I just think some of the concepts uh, apply rather neatly. Okay. Um, if we were talking about insurgency, or excuse me, counterinsurgency and counterterrorism and occupation success, these might be some of the things we'd talk about. Uh, so what are structural issues, right? So people often point to the success of the U.S. occupation of Germany and Japan after World War II. And some people said, you know, you had um, really strong uh, economic potential and development that made it easier. 
Um, and related, you had mobilized populations that the insurgent, the counterinsurgent power could draw on with relative ease. And it was harder for those opposed to the occupation or seeking to create insurgency to mobilize the population. Um, a big question is about political will. And you had um, strategic interests, for example, again, in World War II that talked about the importance of Germany, uh, the, why you'd want to keep troops there, that make political will easier. Uh, in contrast, there are real questions about, you know, for example, Libya. Uh, does, did the U.S. have a strong reason for intervening in the first place? And that made political support for a lasting intervention almost non-existent. Uh, so the real questions about uh, factors that determine political will. Um, neighbors are always a big issue when you talk about insurgencies. So part of the misery of Afghanistan is they're next to Pakistan, they're next to Iran. Uh, they have a number of states that have regularly intervened in its history. Uh, Iraq, of course, a number of states intervening when the United States was there. Um, and neighbors cause tremendous problems if they, if they want to. Um, also, one thing that's extremely common after wars, and especially defeats after civil wars, is you have the local government that is to some degree failed or devastated. And as a result, the jargon we use in political science is it's relatively easy for spoilers to emerge, for relatively small groups to use violence, and in so doing skew political results. Another uh, factor that I've looked at in my own work is the individual level factor, where there's a remarkable leadership transition. There was a real debate um, as to who is the worst president of the United States, but I think on many people's shortlist is Andrew Johnson. Um, and he was someone who was an avowed racist. He was, um, he had poor political skills and he tried to kind of stir the pot in terms of making things worse. And of course he succeeds um, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who is on a short list of many Americans for the greatest president ever. So he had a really remarkable transition uh, as one way of explaining it. And then another set of factors are within the control, if you will, of the policy community. And that's a, not exactly the best description of the United States in um, you know, 1867, but you have people making decisions, right? And did they have clear goals? Were they able to coordinate it on the civilian side as well as the military side? Did they have sufficient capacity um, to govern? Did they have sufficient capacity to enforce orders? <coughs> and were they prepared to do it for the long term? There's a lot of research on both counterinsurgency and on occupations that say, these take a long time to succeed and that the insurgencies are gonna last a while and you really have to endure if you're gonna make this work. Okay, um, after the defeat of the South, you have a real question, which is what is meant to be the fate of the enslaved population? Uh, a lot of what, at least I focused on my high school history were things like the emancipation, emancipation population, can't say that word, um, and the emancipation of the, uh, of the slaves in the South. Uh, but there's a huge gap between not being slave and being an equal citizen. And it's important to remember that in many Northern states at this time that uh, Blacks did not have full rights. Couldn't vote in many states. There were um, resolutions offer, um, saying they should have the right to vote that were defeated at this time period. Um, so there's a real question of what does victory mean? Does victory mean you just end slavery? But you have a system that is highly repressive and doesn't allow voting and so on. Uh, doesn't mean economic freedom. The much, much of the Southern economy depended on cheap slave labor. 
and could slaves leave the plantations? A lot of people who were in the North who were very concerned about you know, the South in a positive sense were really worried about what, who's gonna harvest the cotton, right? A very basic question if the slaves leave. Um, voting questions, and then the one that was troubling to, most troubling to most people was the idea of social equality. Right, the idea that a black person and a white person would be equal in a restaurant, would be equal walking down the street. Um, intermarriage was portrayed as the ultimate nightmare. So you had real questions, and there were a lot of kind of in-between ideas, right? So let's let black soldiers who fought for the Union vote. Let's have an intelligence test, and those who pass will do this. Um, so there are all sorts of proposals short of full equality. Um, what happens then is events start to push policy. So right after the war, Southern states produce what are known as the Black Codes. They produce a series of legislations that varies by state, but they basically deny most rights to the newly free Blacks. They say, okay, you're not slaves, but you can't serve on a jury. You can't vote. You can't own a gun. Um, frequently, you can't leave your land without the permission of the landowner, right? So a whole host of severe restrictions. Um, there are protests about that, when there are protests, there are killings. Uh, at the time, people called them riots, but really they're massacres or pogroms of the black population. It's utterly one-sided. And um, in that, that produces outrage. So in the North, people are saying the South is trying to overturn the results of the war. Um, this leads to a back and forth with President Johnson, who um, refuses to overturn these. And you end up getting the Reconstruction Acts which are when Congress basically overrides President Johnson, removes civilian governments in the South, suspends their constitutions, puts the South under army rule, right? This is martial law for 10 years in the United States. And then only in 1877 does the federal government withdraw troops. Um, and this happens after an election where the results are basically disputed. And they're disputed because of race. They're disputed because in some states, blacks are disenfranchised through violence. And so the question is, is the result legitimate? And basically there's a, what they call the great compromise and it was praised for many years. And the idea was that um, the Republican would be allowed to win, but in so doing he would withdraw federal troops from the South and reconstruction's gonna end. And so it's a way of kind of a short-term victory, but giving long-term victory to the, those opposed to reconstruction. Um, to stress, the southern states have failed, right? The economies are a disaster. It's unclear who the government is, but there is a racial power imbalance that persists nonetheless. Uh, who owns the press? Who owns the plantations? Um, who has weapons left over from the war, right? All these questions favor the white population. Um, during this uh, period, you have both sides trying to use voting laws to disenfranchise the other. So it talked about whites trying to disenfranchise blacks. Uh, a big question is how do you handle those who were basically traitors to the union? Do you give people who fought for the Confederacy the right to vote? And if so, where do you draw the line? Is it basically, you know, Jefferson Davis and General Lee can't vote, but everyone else can? Is it if you served in the Confederate army, which was almost every white male of fighting age in the South, right? Where do you draw the lines? And as you would expect, politicians are drawing them for political reasons, as well as ideological ones, right? If you disenfranchise white voters uh, who fought for the Confederacy, 
that makes the Republican side much more likely to win elections. Um, and what the Republicans in the South find is that if they're going to win elections, they need black votes, that there aren't enough white Southerners who are going to support them. And as a result, the necessity of black voting becomes political necessity, not just ideological necessity. Um, and during this time period, I have some statistics in the paper. Uh, there's really remarkable black political progress. You have roughly 20% of elected offices in the South are uh, held by um, either blacks coming down from the North or the formerly enslaved. Uh, you have black senators at the national level, you have black representatives. Um, and we really don't get there um, for another 120 years in terms of that level of success and representation. And one thing I'll stress again is the local level, where because this is a true federal system at the time where the local and state have much more power, having a black sheriff is tremendously important because that is law enforcement as far as the entire community is concerned. Um, in all this, violent groups are playing a tremendously important role. Um, so the Klan gets a lot of attention, it's founded um, during this time period. There are a range of groups active. Um, they, are, they all have different, not all, but many have different names and you know, some are very, you know, they call themselves knights and they have all these kind of beautiful names, uh, but they are basically all variations of the Klan. They tend to be local groups with very limited uh, centralized command and control, but they cooperate with one another. Um, often they learn what they should do from the newspapers. So another group will do something and they'll imitate it. Um, that's how you get common dress and so on. Um, I think the stress is that among the white population in general, the violence is popular. So this is seen as something akin to military service. These are people who are protecting their community. And I look back and see this as horrific, but this is a very different perspective than say uh, violence today by the Klan, where it's really a minority within a minority. Uh, then it was um, obviously not the entire majority is not participating, but widespread support. It tends to spike before elections. And what makes from a social science point of view, this easier to study is you often had elections on different days in different states then. It wasn't the same kind of, you know, first Tuesday after the first Monday sort of regularity. Um, and sometimes you'd have two elections in the same year. You might have congressional elections um, in the spring and then um, <coughs> elections uh, for president in, in November. So you get a lot of data to compare spikes. And it's not, there are other reasons for spikes. It's not just elections, but elections are a very common reason for spikes. Um, there's systematic intimidation of leaders and activists as well as voters in general. Um, people are killed, people are driven from their home, their houses are firebombed, uh, they are horribly beaten. Um, and this is easier because it's a time before the secret ballot is widely used. So you know who's carrying the ballots. You can watch someone and watch them vote because they're walking across a public area to drop a ballot into a bin and therefore you can monitor their voting uh, more effectively. Um, and so there's systematic intimidation. Um, and this is reinforced at the social and economic level. So whites who were initially, a significant number of whites initially support the Republican side, but there's social and economic pressure against them. And by the end of Reconstruction, they are systematically on, or comprehensively on the Republican side. Um, even when you have people arrested, there's not much you can do at the local level local prosecutors, local juries, no one is um, arresting, no one is convicting, no one is putting people in jail. 
So when everything's done at the state or local level, it is supporting the side of a white violence. Uh, black voting is devastated over time. In some areas you go from, you know, some counties you might have 1,500 votes in one election and the next election you have one. Um, and, you know, this is within a six month period. And uh, in my paper, I have kind of figures on the black versus white population in some states. So relatively small changes can have a big impact. And we're actually seeing large changes. So you see different changes in voting numbers. Um, something that's troubling to me is we actually don't know how many people die. Um, I'm guessing the number is in the high thousands or low 10,000s, but it's a very, very large number, right? And especially given the population of the United States at the time. Um, what we have are lots of snapshots, but often unless large numbers of black people died, people are not keeping track. And the violence was much more likely to be in areas that were remote in rural areas, far from the media. Um, and far from uh, federal troops. And so even less likely to be reported. Um, so you have significant death toll, but unclear how many. Um, you have a recognition of this halfway through reconstruction. And they pass what are known as the Enforcement Acts or the KKK Acts. And um, these actually almost 100 years later become very important. So during the civil rights era, the federal government uses these to go after the Klan. Um, and quite successfully, in fact. Um, and they work. So in areas where the troops crack down, they arrest people, the Klan is broken, Klan members give up other Klan members, it's a very effective use of law enforcement. But there just aren't that many troops. So this isn't done comprehensively. It'll be done in some counties, but not other counties. And then, of course, the troops will leave and the violence will resume. Um, support for reconstruction declines over time. Uh, part of it is there is corruption reconstruction. Uh, it tended to be exaggerated by its critics because they wanted to blame uh, blacks in government for, for every bad thing. Uh, <clears throat> but the Grant administration was somewhat famously corrupt. And for those of you who read the Ron Chernow biography, like a complaint I have about Chernow in general is uh, he makes all his biographical subjects heroes, right? And Grant had a real corruption problem and it to me marred a lot of his presidency. Um, you also had the Panic of 1873, which was the worst economic downturn the U.S. had had. Um, you know, utterly devastating until the Great Depression. And uh, not surprisingly, people have other priorities. So both Democrats and Republicans want to move on. And not surprisingly, the very, you know, the difficulties and the cost of reconstruction are starting to wear thin. Okay, so kind of going back to those factors I discussed earlier. Um, you have your structural factors, right? So I would say the South was strategically vital. You didn't have meddling neighbors. So there's some positive news for what you'd expect on reconstruction. Um, both sides mobilized quickly. The, a surprise, at least a theoretical surprise, would be the quick mobilization of the Black community. And part of that is due to help from the federal government. You have the Freedmen's Bureau. But part of it is just a tremendous eagerness to, you know, frankly, determine their own fate. Um, but big structural problems that loom large were the failed state and governance the ability of relatively small groups to operate with a degree of impunity. And that's an inherently difficult problem that was gonna make policy hard no matter what. Um, you, I mentioned how Johnson was such a poor leader, but you then had a series of leaders, President Grant, many military commanders, key congressional leader, leaders who were highly committed to reconstruction. So I don't think leadership at the national level was a particularly strong explanatory variable on this one way or another. Um, it, if anything, it would probably suggest success over time, given the commitment of many senior people. 
Um, many of the policy factors uh, bode poorly for success. A, a big one is the Republicans took a while to figure out what exactly they want. Um, and again, this real question of, do you want the enslaved to be equal? Was something that had different levels of support among different Republicans. There's no expectation this is gonna be a lengthy application. And yet it endures year after year. Right? People are genuinely surprised by this. <clears throat> uh, again, I mentioned a small number of troops. Uh, uh, there's usually around 10 to 15,000 troops being deployed. Uh, you'd want about 180,000 troops based on US assumptions on force planning right now. So really we're kind of missing a zero when it comes to deployments. Uh, but a big one is also a lack of civilian capacity. Uh, at the time, the US federal government is really tiny, right? And you know the whole kind of social welfare nature that comes in during the Great Depression and then the Great Society, all that's lacking. And so you don't have this mass apparatus at the federal level for penetrating the country. So you have um, the day-to-day -day governance is expected to be down at the state level. And as a result, you don't have people at the national level kind of trained and ready to go in and govern. And you, the civilian capacity problems we, we still see in the State Department today are, are minor compared to that massive uh, requirement at the federal level. Um, and in general, you had a very strong laissez-faire mindset Right, so um, even you know prominent uh, African American leaders of the time, like Frederick Douglass, they're saying we don't need help, right? Just leave us alone, and we will work hard, and we will, if we have full rights, we will succeed, and that's very admirable. But it kind of misses the role of violence, right? It misses that people need very basic protection against violence, and in my view, that failed state and governance issue at the structural level is greatly exacerbated by these policy factors. Okay, there are three possible solutions that I think are worth considering. Uh, one is that you had a large part of the population that would have fought to stop white supremacy, and that, of course, is the black community. Uh, many had fought during the Civil War and fought quite bravely. There are a few local attempts to use militias, and they generally work. Um, this was generally seen by the white community as Armageddon. And there are um, it's kind of for those interested in the study of rumor, there's one of the kind of big rumors right at the beginning, uh, excuse me, right at the end of Civil War is what's known as the Christmas insurrection, where you're going to have a massive revolt of blacks who are going to kill everyone in the South. Right? And of course, it doesn't happen, it's not a real thing. But you have this fear, this tremendous fear of insurrection, and any moves to arm the black community are resisted by whites who are otherwise sympathetic to the black community. So it's seen as tremendously polarizing. Um, another possibility is to try to exploit white divisions more effectively. You had a lot of economic differences in the white community. And someone like Andrew Johnson himself is a good example, where he was someone who believed initially was very much against the kind of white plantation elite in the South. And was, you could think of it in terms of kind of poor um, whites who couldn't afford slaves or couldn't afford large plantations those who favored more industrial interests, a whole host of economic divisions. Uh, but as I think has generally been the case in US history, uh, racial um, issues have trumped economic ones, where you had whites, rich and poor, working together over time um, against the black community. Um, and then an obvious one, of course, is more troops and, and enduring occupation. Um, 
this is something that goes against the mindset of the time. Uh, the army was supposed to be small in peacetime. Right? You're supposed to have really almost a skeleton army. You're fighting wars against the Native Americans, but that's about it. And so the idea, you know, you see this after World War I where the United States disbands its forces massively, right? It's not until uh, World War II, the aftermath of World War II that the United States keeps a massive uh, peacetime army. So when the war's over, people go home. And that's the assumption. So to keep a very large army would have been against the expectations of the time. And related to that was an enduring occupation, uh, that this was seen as something that should end quickly. Um, and in a way, having the occupation uh, go through 1877 is actually quite remarkable. That's a fairly long period of time <coughs> uh, to have a military occupation of really anything, but especially one's own territory. And uh, so it's not surprising to me that other priorities are going to come up, right? That I, it's always hard to predict what they were, what they would be. But, you know, right now, you know, the United States is you know, focused on pandemics and people are not paying particular attention to foreign policy, right? That's those sorts of surprises always happen when you're looking at policy over time. Okay, a few lessons and then I'll, I'll welcome questions. Um, one is that when U.S. history is taught, this Reconstruction period is given relatively little attention. Uh, some of you on this uh, Zoom session are my age, uh, where if you learn the history at all, it was probably, you know, you had these kind of scalawags and carpetbaggers coming in, and, you know, they were up to no good and really stealing things, and there was some unpleasantness, and then fortunately things stabilized, right? And the kind of, oh, by the way, a system was created that utterly shut out a third of the population is really not prioritized, right? The remarkable political gains of the uh, formerly enslaved are uh, not discussed. The incredible amount of violence in order to achieve this is not discussed. Um, so to me, a huge problem in how history is taught. There are lessons we talk about on troop numbers, on spoilers, on unified strategy. I think these are largely validated by Reconstruction. I'd love to find, as uh, someone who wants to publish, I'd love to find you know, some brilliant insight that this shows and no other case shows. But I actually think it largely checks a lot of the boxes that many other experiences show. Um, one thing that shows up regularly in counterinsurgency and others is the danger of half measures, that you have very ambitious goals. And in this case, to entirely redo the political, economic, and social system of a large chunk of America, but you're not resourcing it, right? You're putting relatively limited means to resourcing it. And so it's not surprising to me that revolutionary goals combined with limited means is not going to succeed. Um, and I'll end really where I began with, it, with this question when we talk about conciliation and compromise, right? I'm, I'm someone who's very leery of a, law, of a large US presence in Afghanistan. Uh, but to me, when we leave, it's gonna have tragic results uh, as the Taliban gain more control from more of the country, right? And we can talk about relative levels of evil when we talk about the Afghan government, which is not the world's greatest government in any event, uh, versus the Taliban and so on. But there will, um, when you make compromises with an adversary that has political beliefs that are, are hateful, um, there's a real human cost to it. And I think that needs to be acknowledged, even though perhaps in the end, sometimes that compromise is best. But to me, Reconstruction is a really good example because I think if you said to a lot of Americans, you know, should we have kept on with a bloody, um, you know, uh, costly effort, probably deployed more troops? You know, certainly at the time, the answer was no. But I think many people today looking back in history would say, you know, I actually wish they would have tried harder 
I wish they would have put more troops in. I wish you know, we would have suffered more then, so we suffer less later. And that's a lesson I think that you know, at least much of the stuff that I read doesn't uh, fully appreciate. Uh, so let me stop there and I would welcome uh, questions, comments. Um, again, this is very much a, a work in progress. So vehement disagreement is actually quite useful as well. So thank you. Well, thank you, Dan. That was you know, terrific. Very clear, raised lots of great questions. Um, so the question queue is open, has been open, and, and you know, uh, I'm uh, shocked to find one of my well-known colleagues first on the question list, but I would really love if a student would um, volunteer to ask the first question, and I will uh, skip over. Okay, um, uh, there we got a student, uh, Zoe Desch. Uh, uh, I will try to unmute you. Please uh, show your video as well, Zoe, and, and then have at it. Trying to find it, hold on. There we go. All right, hello. Um, thank you for coming to talk with us today, uh, Dr. Byman. I was wondering if, uh, so with your criteria about dealing with insurgencies, particularly domestic, domestic insurgencies, would you say that it would be best to treat it as a bit of foreign body because what you were saying where it's like it's bad to make compromises it's almost saying that uh it should it should be delegitimized and therefore treated as something foreign especially to the ideology of of, of a given country because it is so uh contrary to um the country's beliefs so should it be treated as a bit of a foreign body uh, that's effectively what the radical Republicans do in the beginning part of Reconstruction. So you have these governments that are initially appointed by southern states that are basically the same um, governments that seceded in the first place. So the vice president of the Confederacy is returned to the U.S. Senate. You have generals and colonels in the Confederate Army that are sent to Congress. Um, and Congress says we're, radical Congress says we're just not allowing this. And we are treating you as we're not recognizing the legitimacy of your system. Um, and uh, th this is, you know, here's something that, you know, this is clearly a, a kind of uh, modernist bias, right? So I would say yes to your question, but you have to accept the, the prevailing assumptions of racism at the time to say that, you know, the the vast majority of Americans at the time would agree that whites and blacks are not equal, right? Now, what that means in terms of denying rights is a different question, right? Do you, you know, some would say you, want, uh, you can deny uh, rights completely. Others would say you can't deny uh, rights, they're just not equal. Um, and so some of the ideas that I hope we all now found, find completely objectionable were not to many of the serious people making decisions, right? Not just the conferences, but many of the serious people. There are only a few people looking back who, in a way, are, are really heroic in terms of their beliefs. Um, so, you know, yes, I think you would actually have to treat them, you know, certain things as outside the system, which is, to just be clear, fundamentally undemocratic, right? I mean, you're saying that there are certain ideas held by a significant number of Americans that we are not gonna let into our political system, right? Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, we, we do that through a constitution, right? And that was part of the purpose of the passage of the, the 14th and 15th Amendments, right? Was to make sure that everyone can vote and everyone enjoys certain rights, even if most people at a state level or even at the federal level say that's not true. So we do that in some ways in a constitution, but it's, 
it's a, this was a very strong rejection of popular sovereignty at the state and local level, um, which was went against everything America had stood for before then, right? And the, you know, you can, one way to think about the Reconstruction period is who gets to decide questions of civil rights? And in Reconstruction, it's the federal level. After Reconstruction through Jim Crow, it's the state level. And then starting again in the 1960s, it's the federal level again, right? And so you only have progress when this is taken out of the state and local level. Um, and then at some point, and I hope we're there now, I'd like to think that if you took the federal level out completely, you would still have good laws at the state and local level because these ideas are internalized. Um, I don't know that's true, but that's certainly my hope. So would you say that's a useful paradigm for dealing with insurgencies these days as well? Um, so there's a big, it depends, right? So in <clears throat> many places, insurgencies are simply power struggles between two different groups that, you know, they basically believe the same thing, which is that I should have power and you shouldn't. And it's not, you know, a contest of ideas, right? Um, uh, in some cases, it is a contest of ideas, right? So, you know, before your time, but, uh, you know, Marxist insurgencies, very much had a set of ideas, whether Maoist or um, more traditional communist, um, and that they saw as an opposition to the existing system. So they not only wanted power for themselves, they wanted to fundamentally change social relations uh, within the country. Um, and you know, there's a real question, we're, we're seeing a variation of it in the US political discourse today, on you know, whether the um, kind of the market of ideas and the contest of ideas is fragile or not. Right? And you know, one thing that's fascinating to me is looking at Europe on this question, where you know, Europe's all over the map, right? You know, they look at the US First Amendment as like crazy land, right? Like, you know, why would anyone allow you to say anything, right? Like what's going on there, right? Even the UK, which has a very strong free speech tradition, thinks we're a little crazy. Um, and then you get to countries that have had a fascist experience, right? So Germany, Italy, Spain, have very strong restrictions. Because right, their view is free speech can get way out of hand, right? Um, as an American, I'm actually very uncomfortable with that, right? Um, but I'm willing to say it's a debatable proposition, right? That it's a, it's a tough one. So that question of kind of, should you think of outlawing ideas? I think when institutions are weak, there's a better case to be made for it. And when an insurgency is rampant, almost by definitions, institutions are going to be weak. Okay, thank you so much. Sure. Well, so um, continuing the Desh family Q&A session, uh, Mike Desh. Uh, hey, Dan, uh, thanks for a, a terrific paper. Um, I really uh, uh, enjoyed it. Uh, it. It's timely, um, and uh, there's a lot of food for uh, for thought in it. Um, one thought that it sparked in me uh, was, uh, what was the Civil War all about? Uh, it seems to me it was about two things. Um, it was about uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, it was about ending slavery. But of course, uh, the bombardment uh, of uh, Fort Sumter um, in Charleston Harbor uh, had occurred well before that. 
Um, and really, it was primarily about maintaining the union. And, and indeed, the you know the sorry history of uh, you know America's treatment of uh, African Americans and slaves goes all the way back to uh, 1787 and the Three Fifths Compromise in the Constitution and the you know only defensible uh, argument. Uh, about that was that uh, the compromise was made based on the assumption that uh, if we wanted a union that included 11 slaveholding states, uh, we couldn't abolish uh, slavery right away. So it seems to me that your paper has to deal with the challenge that, uh, in fact, maintaining the union um, and undertaking the radical Republican, and make no mistake about it, you're, we modern Americans are radical Republicans, uh, that uh, the radical Republican agenda, you know, to uh, fully enfranchise African Americans uh, was uh, compatible uh, with also maintaining the union. Now, Abraham Lincoln, your hero, uh, did not think that that was the case. He didn't think it was the case before the war. He delayed in uh, issuing the Emancipation Proclamation for a couple of years and then issued it for uh, tactical or strategic reasons, not principal reasons. And in fact, he was so dilatory uh, on these issues from the perspectives of the radical Republicans that they tried to... Uh, uh, make sure that he wasn't reelected um, in 1864. Um, and so uh, what's the case that we could have had our cake and eat it too? And if we couldn't have had our cake and eat it too, which was certainly Lincoln's position, um, then uh, why isn't this just, you know, sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, from the post-Second Reconstruction, the mid-60s civil rights era uh, of a, a previous period in time when maybe we couldn't have had both of these things. Uh, but anyhow, very thought-provoking paper, so I hope you'll take my comments in the spirit that they're offered. Uh, one thing I miss is getting comments from Mike Dash, so those are, those are great comments. So uh, let, me, let me take a whack. Uh, I'm going to begin by saying I am Monday morning quarterbacking. Right, so this is clearly what I'm doing is, is looking back with the full benefit of hindsight and the kind of you know, omniscient future looking back at the past and saying, how could you do this, right? Um, Lincoln is one of those, as you know, kind of enigmatic figures, right? So I have some quotes in my paper where it's where he's saying, you know, maybe the very intelligent should vote, right? He's really kind of, you know, not in the full equality space. Um, but his position kept evolving. Right, and so there are there are historians debate this, and I think you know, what I say in my paper is we just don't know, right? That, well, we, we we do know from the second inaugural oh, uh, that his vision of reconstruction, uh, and I was just watching uh, David Blight's the Yale historians uh, segments on reconstruction, but according to Blight, um, and he knows far more than I know about it, uh, Lincoln's view of reconstruction is that it would be quick it would be moderate, and there was something else, uh, there was three, but it was very different from your radical Republican prolonged uh, occupation. 
and the criteria he put in for being readmitted to the union were very lenient, right? You know, to go to Blight's to point. Um, there's Lincoln never never quite gave an answer to the question of what should the status of the formerly enslaved be, right? And that's a very, I mean, it's always hard before an occupation begins or war begins to answer every political question. But that very basic question of, when you answer that question, you're answering the question, what is the political system of the South, right? Because if you're saying for rights, you're saying one political system. If you're saying subordination, you're saying a different political system. And he's, he was very much about, as you know, winning the war. So a lot of what he does, you know, at one point he returns slaves to slaveholders in order to keep border states in the war, right? I mean, he is, he's ruthlessly focused on winning the war, but he was also surprisingly idealistic and pragmatic at the same time, right? So there's a question of when the war ends, what would he have done? And that's, people have debated that question, but, but more broadly, I'll, I'll take the point, which is for the vast majority of Americans, the war was about restoring the union and for some, ending slavery, in part because the slavery question was ruining the union, right? So I, the radical Republican agenda was something that was not, you know, certainly widely held as the war is being fought. And then I would argue that we don't have opinion polls from this time period. I'd be surprised if it were shared by a majority of Americans at the time. Um, and there is a question, you know, uh, which to me shows up in insurgency and shows up with spoilers in general, which is violent snowballs. Right, so small amounts of violence, um, there's a question of what happens um, after that. And when you don't react to that, um, it can lead to, lead to imitation, which is what happens. Um, it can lead to intimidation. It can change the local power structure that makes it harder to crack down on violence. So there is a question of whether a more significant military presence, especially early on, could have put in place a more durable system but the lack of planning for what that system would be, to me, made that highly unlikely. That there really was a sense of what they were doing was reacting to problems rather than anticipating them and solving them in advance. So the one thing I think that is, again, to be clear, this is Monday morning quarterback, right? But the one thing I think that would have been, um, I think if you phrased it to people as you were trying to utterly transform a political and social system in a way that a significant number of people with guns don't like, you might have designed different policies. And I don't think their eyes were open for the first few years on that question. It's not till around 1870 that their eyes are open. And by then it's pretty late in the game. Great, thanks Dan. Um, so deviating from the dash questioning, uh, uh, Ben Dennison, please. Great. Uh, so thank you so much, Dan, for your uh, excellent paper. Uh, I do a lot of work on occupations and post-war planning. So this was kind of right up my uh, alleyway and I was very excited to read it. Um, so I had a couple of questions. Well, first, a couple of comments that I hope will be helpful, maybe in um, maybe framing and things along that nature to help with the argument. And then I have a question at the end, uh, kind of coming from this occupation uh, perspective. Um, just a couple of quick comments. I think you, know, you mentioned in your talk that you're worried about this importance and kind of how you don't have anything new to say with this case. I think it's actually really important to frame it that like this is confirming all these lessons that we've taken from Iraq and Afghanistan is that it's not, is it um, that the lessons we've taken are not new lessons, but they've kind of always been present and we can't overcome them. 
because a lot of times when you read uh, reflections on Iraq and Afghanistan, especially, they kind of, um, especially towards policymakers, they want to make it seem like, oh, well, if we just would have spent more money or we just would have done something slightly different, we could have solved the problem. Not recognizing that these are long, deep held issues that we're still trying to struggle to overcome how to approach these issues. Uh, and I think it's, you know, even what Mike uh, just mentioned, where you went into the reconstruction period thinking it's going to be quick and cheap uh, mission to kind of do an occupation, get out very quickly. You see that same idea of things are going to be quick and easy and we can get out quickly in regime change and occupations, you know, in the post-1898 wars throughout Latin America during the Wilson era, uh, at, even after World War II, we thought it would be quick and easy to kind of get rid of the Nazis in Germany and get out quickly. It wasn't until, you know, it took some time for them to realize, oh, this is in it for the long haul now. Um, so I think that's an important lesson that you can frame it around. Um, I also would recommend uh, this kind of, uh, you might be, when you're talking about the context of the time, I think two things that you don't mention that could be really important would be that there, this is not the first experience of military government for the US. The Mexican-American War came right before the Civil War. And the lessons that they were taking on what, that was kind of the first big military government experience. And there's a lot of lessons that they were trying to work through at the time of what do we want an, an occupying force to do. Um, in fact, at the time, the world is trying to figure out kind of what do we want the international law of occupation to even say. So there were a lot of these questions going around and similarly, um, there was a lot of civil military concerns about military government, because uh, in this context, it's not, it's, it is a federal occupation, but it's in the context of almost military running the show. And this was so, to your point about it being a different time, um, it was so anathema uh, to American Democrats or American Republicans in that sense that military would be able to actually um, have a, uh, role in governing. So I think that's an important context for what you're talking about as well. Um, then onto the, I have lots of other thoughts, but I don't want to take too much time. Onto the question, um, you cite Edelstein uh, uh, in this on the occupation. And one other takeaway from his book and his work um, that, is not as take, that is not as captured as much uh, in how people cite in literature reviews is that it's not only that the way you can re, uh, have a successful occupation is through external threat, but you could also, you know, it's kind of hidden throughout this text, but if there's like just full on wanton destruction it actually makes it easier as well to have a successful um, occupation as well. And you talk about how the, you know, the situation in the South is, was a little bit, you know, the economic situation was not great, um, but there wasn't quite the same level of sheer, we want pure unconditional surrender. We're gonna, you know, we did have Sherman and stuff going on in the South, but it could have gone even further. Um, so could one take be um, from this that there should have been, you know, to your point where you don't, you kind of mentioned that you're not a fan of compromise. Uh, could it be that, you know, there should have been even more, you know, the union should have kept going even before they got to reconstruction to set the stage um, for a successful occupation? Would that have been kind of, was the initial conditions they found themselves in where there wasn't quite the same level where like, you know, you look at post-war Germany, you know, once the, once the fascists collapse in Italy, uh, you have this sense that, you know, okay, we recognize we're done, we've lost, we need to get over this. Uh, but there wasn't that same sense in the South. So is there, was there a way to kind of get to that point or was that impossible in the US context? That's a really interesting question. One I, I frankly I didn't think of before. And as an aside, I'd love to talk more offline to get yeah. further comments from you. Um, so, 
I, um, there was devastation on a human level in that you had uh, you know, a significant portion of the Southern white male population dead and a much larger population wounded, right? So at that scale, it was probably, um, you know, with the exception of Russia, it was probably greater than most World War II societies. I mean, it's really, it's really a staggering uh, percentage that are, are directly and materially affected. Um, obviously, you don't have the infrastructure destruction the way, uh, you know, outside, of course, where Sherman sweeps through or right along the border areas, right? But that's nothing comparable to the bombed out cities of Japan or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you have some levels of destruction, but not more. Um, I, you know, Dave was in the office next to me when he wrote that yeah. book. Um, and there is a there is a question to me of kind of how robust that finding is outside of um, a certain historical era. Um, I think, you know, in a good way, it would have been very hard for um, uh, for uh, U.S. policymakers to kind of implement that recommendation in that there certainly was comfort with, you know, the military technology of the time when you're shelling an area, you're going to kill whoever's there, right? It's not discriminatory technology. But attacks on civilians um, were, were controversial. And as you know, Sherman's March was controversial, right? And raised a lot of issues. Um, so I think that would have been hard to implement systematically um, just thinking off the top of my head, do we see more success in reconstruction in areas where we saw greater devastation? I think the answer is no. I'd have to kind of compare really more at a fine grain level, but I don't see it at, at a macro level. But that's, that's worth pondering at least. Thank you. Great. So, ah, good. I want to encourage people to add themselves to the queue. We've got 30 minutes left. There are several people on the queue, so it's not like we're going to run out, but please. Bring your questions. And uh, uh, Dan Jacobs. In incidentally, Dan, welcome to South Bend. Dan is our uh, uh, postdoc who has been around but has now arrived. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in, uh, on, on the west side here. Um, so thanks for the paper. It was really uh, thought provoking, as everyone said. I, I have a couple of comments that um, sort of follow on nicely from both, both Mike uh, and Ben's uh, points. I, I think, so it, to me, it would be useful um, early on in the paper to say what the goals of reconstruction were. I mean, there may be debated historically, um, or I'm sure they're debated, uh, but it seems that you should just stake out a position and say, I'm assuming this. Um, for the rest of the paper. We can debate this, but my analysis sort of rests on this assumption. Just be explicit about it. Because as I read the paper, there seems to be this tension where on the one hand, you're saying reconstruction was a failure. And on the other, on page 23, you go, you go on to say, well, you know, the goals were really unclear. So, was it a failure? Um, if the goals were so amorphous, how would we actually evaluate um, whether or not uh, 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 Reconstruction um, failed? And you kind of talk about the elements of Reconstruction on page 10 when you talk about the different uh, amendments, pieces of legislation, etc. Um, but sort of the broad level goals to me were were pretty much absent, uh, or I had to intuit them um, uh, from, uh, uh, from what you wrote. Uh, 
On this issue of compromise, um, you know, I, I agree with you on on moral grounds. You know, I, I, I find that the compromise I find the compromise offensive. I'm not sure anyone would find that controversial apart from a few maybe fringe people. Um, I, I'd kind of like to know when have occupations either proceeded or ended where compromise of U.S. values or Western liberal values uh, were not compromised. You have this, I mean, you talk about uh, Germany, uh, the occupation of Germany and Japan, but even in those cases, there were serious compromises to U.S. values. In Japan, uh, the U.S. was willing to slow down market-oriented reforms because of labor unrest. I mean, in Germany, the U.S. recruited Nazis. Uh, not all, and and denazification didn't actually proceed to the full extent um, that sort of an idealized lack of compromise would uh, have required. So I'm just wondering, is are we to read this as a moral piece, a normative piece, or as analytical? I guess. Uh, but thank you. It was very. It was very interesting. Uh, so um, again, very helpful points. Uh, you're totally right about saying the goals of reconstruction, right? I, I'm terrified a real historian will read this sometime and and utterly freak out because these are such nuanced, complex issues, and what they hate about political scientists is we say, you know, there were three goals in the Cold War, right? And one, two, three, right? And uh, they just react against that. So I was shying away from that, uh, but I think you're right. I think it would make it much clearer to give people the criteria up front, and then well, and make their own judgments. Go ahead, please. Yeah, and just just to to uh, to add to that, I, I mean, because one one of the issues that will come up, and that when you uh, transition to Iraq and Afghanistan, is were these failures of execution or conception? And if you haven't laid out what the sort of ends of the policy were, we don't know if it was a failure of the ends or the means. No, sorry, right. but go no, no, no. I'm going to write a note on that because I like how you phrase it. <laughs> Um, okay, so strong yes on point number one. Uh, point number two is really interesting, right? So I would, the scale of compromise you're talking about in Germany and Japan to me is much less, right? It's not, you know, they're, um, if you will, the kind of classic, you know, uh, small moral compromises that are made by governments on a regular basis. Um, it's taking, it's, a new political system is created, a new group of people is empowered, and then you make some adjustments to that. But to me, it's that's not a huge shift. I am, for those who study counterinsurgency, right, uh, you get really tired of hearing about Malaya because it's this exceptionally unusual case that really is not relevant to 99% of the insurgencies in the world, right? And so, you know, it's like when people talk about economic development and they, they say, for example, Singapore, right? Like it's, there are just some bad examples if you're trying to generalize. And I'm a little nervous about using Germany and Japan too much as examples. So I, I actually right. think they're kind of, if you will, on my side of you can do it, but they're not the ones I want on my side. Um, I would like uh, kind of uh, some cases that to me are, you know, uh, did not happen in the immediate aftermath of World War II in, in certain societies. Um, and that's a good question, right? Uh, I do think that at times you do see this kind of you know, new political systems created 
Um, there's real questions, you know, in Iraq, there is in a way an utter disaster, but in a way you have a government that has a, you know, empowered lots of its citizens who were not empowered before. Um, you know, it's a dramatic shift from the Saddam era, not, not just in terms of democracy versus dictatorship, where there's a big shift in a positive direction, but also in terms of somebody who governs. Very basic questions. Um, Afghanistan's uh, messier for a variety of reasons, not particularly positive. Um, uh, you could look at the Balkans and you could talk about some regime change there having better in some ways. Um, and again, uh, um, but there it's more empowering a majority against a minority, which is an easier thing, right? Um, there are uh, certainly plenty of failures of this as well. Um, you know, I don't want to pick on Ben for being helpful to me earlier, but he probably has a better sense comprehensively of where there have been successes and failures. But I take your point, right, that um, you have a real question, you know, going back to what I think is that very good work, you know, the really classic work in the field, Stebbins' work on spoilers, um, you know, on what to do with spoilers, right? And there are some, his point is you just got to kill these guys. But there is a fair number that you can buy off in different ways. And to me, when you're talking about compromise, you're talking about buying off spoilers. Now, to me, um, there are questions on what compromise would have looked like in the system that was more, um, that allowed some degree of empowering the uh, African-American community, right? <clears throat> would that be stacked political systems and so on? I don't know what that looks like, but what I, I see this as kind of a, a result that heavily favored one side rather than more of a compromised result. It's just, it's kind of the, the basics of military defeat. Thank you. Great. Um, uh, how about Emily Lug? Hi there. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Byman. I really appreciated your talk. I think it was a really interesting way of kind of framing the issue. So I have two questions. Um, the first one is, about, are they both about the psychological effects of terror that you touch on towards the end of your paper? Um, the first one is, um, how would the roads not taken that you um, talk about at the end of your paper uh, rectify the psychological effects of um, the terror on Black communities? And um, I think this is especially important because uh, it deals with the exercise of like the free rights that the civil war was fought for. Um, also, um, how would you define terror in that context? So uh, if you're relying on the psychological effects of terror as a kind of barometer for what terror is, um, would you define terror as the immediate threat of severe physical violence and bodily harm? Or would you also expand it to something further, like the looming threat of like white supremacist violence? Like, you know, not something like I'm going to hunt you and your family down right now, but something kind of more broad and vague. Uh, those are very interesting questions. And it's actually, um, whenever I, I write on current white supremacist violence, I get about 100 um, nasty Twitter comments from mainly from neo-Nazis. Uh, but the general thing is I get like pictures of burning cities and it's like, what about Black Lives Matter? What about Antifa, right? Um, I actually wrote a piece today um, in Vox kind of talking about 
how do you think about all this stuff, right? And a lot of it's about, in fact, the big factor I'm focusing on is that psychological question, right? So all violence has a psychological effect, right? Um, the thing about terrorism is the psychological effect is meant to be primary, right? So one of the guy named Martin McGinnis in the provisional IRA, he had a line I love to use, which is, um, uh, you don't kill people for the sake of killing them, right? And his point was, you're trying to have, you know, the five people you happen to kill in that bombing attack are actually don't matter, right? They're just not, you have nothing against them. You're usually going for someone to have a much broader impact well outside it. And I tend to think kind of geographically, right? Are you trying to send a broader message out there? A lot of the violence of the Reconstruction era fits more into the kind of pogrom sort of thing, right? People are, they have guns, they are angry, they go shoot people. And they're not thinking about even the next town over, let alone the state or national level. But you do have a pretty systematic effort to make examples, especially of black politicians or sympathetic white politicians in the hopes of influencing other political leaders and forcing people into hiding, uh, people are afraid to run. Um, so uh, some of the white violence doesn't fit terrorism, but some of it very much does uh, because it's designed to have that. Um, so the road's not taken, they wouldn't have affected, none of them would have shaped the psychological effect. Uh, they would have, if they had been implemented, had a chance at least, maybe not, but at least notionally of reducing the violence. And by having fewer incidents, you have less of a psychological effect. Uh, but there are some things people talk about today uh, that in terms of, you know, one thing that reduces the psychological effect, right, is, you know, do elites, you know, talk about the violence and say, oh my God, the world's ending, we're all going to die. In which case the psychological effect is magnified. Do they say, yeah, you know, it's really tragic and sad and we should comfort those we love, but, you know, three people died and that's really a bad car accident. Right. And so how leaders handle that is a way of handling the psychological effect. Um, none of the measures I was proposing were focused on the psychological effect. They're much more focused on kind of be reducing the incidence and scale of, of violence. And in so doing, that would have psychological repercussions, but weren't focused on that particular aspect. Okay, thank you. Great. Uh, Fritz Heinzen. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your work. Um, when they say there's nothing new under the sun, uh, well, there, there is. And, and, I, and, and for me, it's been, it's been quite a, a reflection because having, having worked on a number of books and, and uh, essays on Iraq, Afghanistan, and occupation, and I thought about the many hours with many colleagues spent over, well, nearly 16 years or so with using examples from ancient through Algeria to modern, I don't remember once any of us ever having looked at reconstruction. I don't think, I'm sure of it. And I've emailed some of my colleagues and, and, and I've asked them, did any of you ever, ever think of reconstruction? So in that sense, fascinating and, and, and very original and, and yet use, quite useful. Uh, my, my question is, and, it, and it's, uh, it, it comes on page uh, 28, and you, um, and in fact, I may be so off the wall, this may be a very simple one to, to, to answer. And, and you say radical Republicans and military leaders generally understood the true character of their opponents, but they lacked the power or the will to stop them. And, and, I've, and I've wondered, I'm not a, a Civil War expert, so I don't know, but I've read a fair amount of Grant's work and others. Did they really, really come to grips? Did they fully appreciate um, the, the nature of what they were up against? 
they were used to at times more genteel soldiers, more genteel opponents. You end at Appomattox. It's a wonderful, great feeling. You write notes for everybody. Everybody wanders home. It's 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 all such a, a touchy feely kind of a of a ending. But the the, the reason I, I wonder more about this is because for Grant, much of his information was always from General Sharp. Uh, Sharp was his 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 intel guru, and and he didn't have a Sharp at this time. And as you point out in your paper communications, intel, all of this, it's, it's, it's pretty bare. There's <laughs> just not a lot there. So is he getting the necessary feedback other than Governor Ames? Is he, yeah, what is he getting back? And not just Grant, but some of the others. Are, do they have the true full appreciation necessary to say, okay, we've got to stop this, stomp on it, stomp on it hard. And although you do point out very ably in there, all the limitations anyway, even if they did fully understand, a population that didn't want to go along with it. So again, I may be off the way off the range on this, but how do you, how do you think, did they fully appreciate the enemy? So I think there's, there's a bit of lag, right? So where, you know, some of the things that they do initially were not done under the assumption they would be met with widespread violence. Uh, but over time, so, you know, Grant is getting tons of reports also from different military commanders, right? And they are, many of these are his former subordinates who he's quite close to, um, you know, Sheridan plays a very important role in this. And there are a number of others who are, you know, are heroes of the Civil War that are uh, military governors. Um, you also have elected Republican leaders in the South that are in constant contact with them because their own hold on power is threatened. And that has implications for the entire Republican Party. So there are questions of political survival, of getting their people in. Um, and so, you know, uh, Ames has mentioned the paper, but there are a number of governors who, you know, lose their uh, <clears throat> basic questions of who can vote are shaping whether they'll win the election. And they're in constant dialogue with the National Party. And um, so I think Grant was pretty well informed by the end. I think early on, Probably less so. But just to be fair, I, I don't, I have not, I've kind of, a, I know that the, the governors were in regular contact with him. I know his military commanders were, but I haven't kind of systematically studied his writings to see the evolution of how he thought about the reconstruction problem, right? And as I'm sure you know from his memoirs, he's pretty candid about it in his memoirs, but the joy of a memoir is you're, you know, you were smarter than you were at the time, at least in my memoir, will be, right? And so um, I haven't kind of checked that against uh, some of the more contemporary records. Very good. Thank you. Oh, excuse me. Great. Uh, Jack Rourke. Oh, it just happened. Hey, good evening, Dr. Byman. Uh, my question is, what were so, so let me step back for a second. So the Klan uh, today, we, we would say, is nowhere near the threat that it was back during the uh, post-Reconstruction time uh, and during Reconstruction. So in, in a sense, the war has, is kind of over in, in that war on terror. Um, I'm not sure exactly how you would say it, if it has ended, but what were some measures that over time, it's taken a really long time to get there, but what were some measures that the government has taken to effectively reduce the Klan's effectiveness? Uh, and how would, 
could you maybe pull some of those lessons out from from American history and apply them to take your pick of a terrorist organization that we're facing today? Um, so glad you asked that question because uh, it's an entirely different topic that I've really gotten into, um, which is what caused the, the demise of the Klan. So historians of the Klan will talk about three big waves. So one is the immediate aftermath of Reconstruction. And then when they win, they don't need a Klan anymore, right? You control the government. So to stop blacks from voting, you, you, know, you have the local sheriff do it, right? You don't need uh, vigilantes. Um, and then it returns again in, uh, especially in the 1920s, but really there's a, a movie, one of the first kind of big motion pictures is called Birth of a Nation that glorifies the role of the Klan. And it, it actually creates the second Klan. People watch it and they're like, that's really cool. And it glorifies the Klan, so the Klan becomes very big in, in Indiana. It's actually one of the biggest uh, states it was in the 1920s. Um, that kind of dies out again. Not dies out a bit too strong, but it becomes much weaker in subsequent decades. And then it surges again in the late 50s and through the mid-60s because of the civil rights era. Um, and you can't at this time separate the Klan from politics. It has, so in the 1920s, um, you know, the Klan slate wins all the elections in Alabama. Right, it's kind of like, you know, I'm with the Klan, vote for me, is enough to, to win all these elections, right? So you have, it's openly part of politics, so no one's gonna crack down on it. And remember, enforcement of civil rights is in the hands of the states. So the people against black equality are in charge of enforcing laws designed to ensure black equality, right? It's just never gonna work. Uh, so when it starts to change in the 1960s, uh, there are a couple of reasons, right? One is there's just a big political shift. And this is frankly due to the courage of the civil rights movement and uh, the development of television. So people are um, you know, in the North who like to pretend this wasn't happening. It's on their news on a daily basis and it changes the political dimension. And so you have a lot of pressure at the national level to do something about this and you get a couple of big results. Uh, one is they start to actually use these reconstruction laws again and they start to go after the Klan in federal court. But a big one which doesn't get the attention it deserves um, is there's an incredibly successful FBI operation. Uh, some people on this call, this is definitely before your time, uh, <coughs> Jack, but some people on this call may know about uh, FBI operation called uh, COINTEL Pro that went after Martin Luther King, that went after the anti-Vietnam War movement and penetrated them and really treated them as kind of how you would a hostile foreign power. Um, and, uh, but it actually began with federal efforts to go after the Klan. And, um, and it utterly devastated the Klan. Uh, by the early 1970s, the FBI estimate was one in six Klan members were an FBI informant. Um, and they, they would do things like, um, you know, they would send letters to spouses saying, you know, your husband's not at a Klan meeting, your husband is sleeping with someone else. Um, they would pay some Klan members to claim other Klan members were stealing. They would pay some Klan members to run against another Klan member and, do, and split the Klan in two. It was uh, in intelligence jargon, we talk about the active measures. It's a very serious active measures campaign to lie about Klan leaders, to sow misinformation. Um, all these things that I'm really glad they did, but were, again, fundamentally undemocratic, right? These are U.S. citizens. They are spreading lies about even if they're U.S. citizens. I disagree with their views on um, but it was a very successful intelligence penetration. Um, but then you needed some legal capacity to follow up on that. And that's where the federalization matters. 
But over time, as the Klan is pushed, as politics changed, you can start to do more and more at the state level. So it used to be in the 60s, the Klan would kill someone. Everyone knew who did it, and no one would be prosecuted, right? And the rare cases where they were prosecuted, no one would be convicted. Then you start to get people convicted. Then you start to get people who are, you start to get local sheriffs going after these people more aggressively. And there's a change of heart among the white community. And uh, so to me, the, there is a big politics and kind of broader, the jargon we would use as hearts and mind components to all this because um, you know, the, the way I would put to you is, um, you know, when the Klan would use violence, everyone knew who did, right? It wasn't really a secret in the community who the Klan people were, but no one would report them. And at certain points in history, that's because they were heroes. Right? Or you, you at least kind of, maybe you shouldn't use violence, but no one wanted blacks to be equal. Right? That was a common view. Um, at some point, you're like, they're not heroes. They're a bunch of thugs. And when you switch to that, counterterrorism becomes really easy. Because what we talk about for those who stay insurgency, the, the jargon we use is the denunciation issue. So the question is, when the insurgents go through a village, do the villagers call up the police and government say, hey, the insurgents are here, help us? Or do they give the insurgents food, water, and protection, right? And sometimes you give food, water, and protection because you're afraid. Sometimes you give it because you're ideologically sympathetic to them. And when the locals feel the need to turn in the violent people, that utterly changes the game. You still get violence, right? <clears throat> it's not that white supremacists don't use violence anymore, but they're much more likely to be caught. Right? You would have dozens of black schools and churches burned on a regular basis. And now, thankfully, it's a big deal and it still happens, but it's much more likely, there are far fewer cases and much more likely to be caught. So to me, that linkage of politics, public attitudes, law enforcement, and intelligence is a way to think about the demise of the Klan in the late 60s that was very effective and applies to lots of terrorists and lots of insurgent organizations around the world. Great. Um, thanks, Jack. Elana uh, uh, Rothkopf. Hi, thank you for your paper. I really enjoyed reading it as um, someone who's working in the space of post-conflict reconstruction in um, post-Cold uh, War civil wars. And I really was excited to see the topic of the paper because I so often it, we don't ever talk about the United States as a comparative case when we talk about civil wars. Um, I guess, and when I first started reading the paper, I was sort of unsure about this, ref, this um, reference to occupation because have you, as you mentioned, it's not sort of a typical case of occupation. And honestly, by the end of the paper, you had me convinced that this was um, an appropriate, uh, it was appropriate to talk about the case of occupation rather than conquest. But I was wondering, since it's not a sort of perfect or typical case of occupation, whether it might also be useful to include references to cases where there'd been a negotiated settlement um, or basically other cases of civil war um, where you had to have this kind of compromise between peace and justice and stability or peace and stability and, and justice and accountability because that's really common in a lot of these cases where you've had a negotiated settlement as opposed to cases where you've had uh, a military victory and so I want I, there there are these references to Iraq and Afghanistan which makes sense in the context of 
um, this is where you have occupations, but if it might also be fruitful to draw some cases from some cases where there's not necessarily a foreign occupation, but where you still have the central government dealing with these same kinds of questions um, rather than a foreign uh, occupier. But yeah, it was really enjoyable read and I learned a lot. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, so I think, and this also refers to Dan's earlier uh, contention on this, right? I, I think you're right. I think that because the occupation, the case for occupation to me is rather squishy, that it does make sense to broaden the aperture a bit and certainly bringing examples because of this compromise, right? And this is a number of your racist issue, right? Of kind of, you know, yes, no one likes this result, but was it actually feasible in some ways to have something better, right? And was there some military option, but more realistically, maybe was there a better compromise, right? Was there something that could have been done that, you know, we talk, I talk about very ambitious objectives and very limited means, right? Could they have done less ambitious objectives, but not zero, right? So instead of going from zero to 100, could they have gone to 50? And, you know, what would that have looked like? So I think bringing in some of those compromise literatures would be great. Um, I will ask you a few suggestions. Uh, offline, please don't hesitate to contact me. Sure. Uh, and I would really welcome them. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, we have short time left um, and uh, one, one more question on the queue and, and then we'll uh, let Dan go, but uh, Rose Kalanick. Okay. Uh, hey Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm Good. feeling a little smarter now after all these points. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I enjoyed the paper. It's great to see you also, by the way. Um, and I, we can talk about this more at dinner, but just to sort of tee off um, I have two general thoughts. One is that this gets somewhat to what other folks have already brought up, um, but something about the paper, so I, I like the paper, it, it's, you know, beyond time for us to actually look at the United States as like a normal country that has terrorism problems and all these other sorts of things and not as an exceptional place. Um, but it occurs to me that, you know, you're judging success and failure, uh, of a case in the past based on today's standards. And I'm sympathetic to that from a moral, ethical standpoint, but um, I'm not sure that it quite works so much when you're talking about failure and success. Um, and part of the issue is that they don't have clear goals. That's part of why it fails, right? Um, it would be helpful to learn more about what the potential goals of reconstruction are. But if I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about comparing this case to Afghanistan, for instance, I look at this occupation um, and I kind of think actually it doesn't look terrible in terms of success, right? By present standards, this is a total disaster. It's awful what happens in the South, right? But um, standards of the past, I mean, the baseline goal I think has to be at least you get the South back in the Union, you get them to stop rebelling, right? Um, and that happens, right? Um, there's not a, a second civil war. There's not ongoing, at least that I know of, please tell me if, if it's the case, but there's not ongoing sort of anti-federal unrest in the South, like people are paying their taxes, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in certain ways, it, it, you could think of it as a, as a success, right? Um, even though the outcome is morally reprehensible from our present standpoint. And then the second point is that I like how broad the paper is. I like that it brings in 
<clears throat> you know, concepts like occupation and insurgency and terrorism, but I also sort of think that there's some conceptual vagueness in how you're switching between them sort of throughout, right? Um, and how, you know, again, it's the question of what is the goal? Is the goal getting them to come back into the union or is the goal squashing white supremacy, right? Um, and I'm curious if, you know, the paper doesn't really speak to how much of this violence, it sounds like the violence is mostly aimed at getting African-Americans to stop voting, getting white people to vote uh, Democratic, not Republican, et cetera, et cetera. How much of it is really aimed at getting the feds out, right? Or at um, resisting various things that the federal government is imposing uh, on the South, right? Um, it's almost in certain ways like a level of analysis problem, right? Like are, are, they, are these attacks meant to influence people on the ground, individuals who are voting or not voting, or are they really aimed at the federal government? Um, and, you know, probably both is going on at the same time. And, it, and pulling those out, I think, would be really helpful. Um, but I guess you know, we're, we're out of time. So those are just comments, I suppose, at this point. But overall, I, I enjoyed the paper. I think it's a totally cool project. Uh, thank you. Uh, should I respond or? I mean, you have something you want to say in negative one minute. Uh, I will uh, be very, very brief then. I will simply say that, uh, you know, point taken on what the goals are, right? I think that's one of my clear takeaways from this talk. And where to think about this um, in terms of different, I always think of different gradations of success, right? Because it's rarely, you know, did, you know, did the New Deal succeed, right? Yes or no, right? Like that's not a yes or no question, right? They're going to be uh, tough answers to, to big programs. Um, and uh, just as I said, surprisingly, the violence is actually, for the most part, not really anti-federal, right? They're mm -hmm. almost never going after U.S. troops. But again, it's more just the nature of how people saw politics at the time, where the state level was so overwhelmingly important. You know, again, remember, there's no, there's no federal income tax, right? There are all these things. There's no social programs, right? All these things we now care about with the federal government are just lacking. So, so much is really done at the state level um, in terms of what matters to people um, in their day-to-day -day lives. So that, that makes sense in the historic period. Um, let me stop there. And um, just everyone, thank you. These are really helpful, useful comments. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Dan, for a really enlightening, terrific talk. Thank you, everyone, for your good questions. Uh, remember, um, Lise Howard on October 13th, um, talking about sources of forced displacement, big expert on peacekeeping. It'll be terrific. But for now, let's all virtually clap or whatever. Thank Dan very much for a great session. We really appreciate your being here. Bye, everyone. See you next time. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap.